Italia 90, one day at a time, day three, and we are really in the flow of things now. Three games to look at, it was a day of goals, goals, goals. Kieran O'Hara, welcome along again. Ciao, Rob. So many goals, Billy Joe Patton, how are you? Very good, Rob. 4-1 here, 5-1 there, loads of drama, what do you reckon, Billy Joe? Really, with all the goals, you kind of got excited for what a World Cup can be because you have all these different players playing at their best in an open style. And sometimes in, in tournament competitions or in games that mean a whole lot, you don't always get that sort of flow to it. But uh, I think just by the nature of the teams that we're playing uh, today, you know, America, not very experienced. You can always have a game like that where they kind of get a bit uh, awestruck at times. And then the Germans and the Yugoslavs, so much quality on the field. And then, like the Czech Republic, you know, we mightn't have known a lot about them, but there were you know, some high-quality players playing there as well. And maybe got to know a bit more about them later on in their careers when some of them played in, 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 maybe in the UK or, 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 in, or in Italy. We might have known they were Czechoslovakia at the time. <laughs> Did I? This is going to become an ongoing issue. Those, those poor Slovaks, they keep getting omitted. <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll forgive you that one, Billy Joe, because let's be honest, we'll be making the same mistake throughout. Yeah, it was a day, Kieran, for high drama. Uh, two games on at once as well. We're going to get into our flow of games as normal in a second, but that's something that maybe the modern World Cup watcher won't even be able to comprehend, that they would put on Brazil and Sweden and West Germany and Yugoslavia. Clearly two fixtures that would jump out at you and they put them on at the same time. Yeah, you can't imagine in the current commercially focused World Cup that they would have two of the marquee teams dividing an audience worldwide. They'd want to get maximum exposure from this. They'd have they'd have made sure that these three games were set out kind of three o'clock, five o'clock, seven o'clock. They they wouldn't have just put two out at the same time, that's for certain. And I and I was trying to figure out did how how did I miss Brazil, Sweden, and then it dawns on you I, I loved this German team, so I know I watched Germany and Yugoslavia on the day. Yeah, I, I do as well. And I, the only memory I have from Brazil, Sweden, Billy Joe, is, is Brolin's goal on the highlights on RTE afterwards, I think. Um, and that's why when I was watching it back, it just it didn't strike any memories. Yeah, I to be honest with you, I remember the, the goal celebrations more than the goals. And, and when you look at them back, there were, there was, you know, I enjoyed all three goals in that game, really. A lot there. I think there was a lot to admire in, in all of it. But the, the Thomas Brolin jump and leap around is, is obviously uh, kind of iconic at this stage. And Kareka with his little wiggle at the corner flag, which Roger Miller was doing as well at the at the same World Cup. So it, you know, there's, there's, there was a there was a lot to remember in that game. But you probably forget the full ninety minutes because, like everyone else, I was watching the Germans. Right. Let's get stuck into the games. Day 3, June the 10th, 1990. United States 1, Czechoslovakia 5. Kieran, United States of America bridging a long gap in the World Cup and uh, maybe the kind of nightmares that um, Michael Foley was describing in the Cameroon's minds in the lead into the Argentinian game possibly bore fruit for the Americans. Anyways, I don't know if they would have ever imagined that they would take such a beating in those days, but whew, what a disaster start. Yeah, I, I don't think they would have. Uh, funny enough, Michael also mentioned um, the USA's great win in Belo Horizonte in 1950. So clearly, maybe we should have had 
Michael on here, he's probably a greater aficionado on US soccer than we are. But they actually, they didn't do so bad for a good while. You know, they, they seemed to be at the race. The funny thing was in the lead into this World Cup, the USA were really novel to a European fan. You were kind of, do they play soccer in America? I know they had a New York Cosmos. I know, I've heard of the New York Cosmos. And you, then you, maybe you were leafing through Billy Joel's sticker album and you're looking at some of the teams. So, some of these guys are in college. That was the one standout. You had players from the UCLA Bruins and let me hope I get this right, the Wake Forest Deacons. Demon Deacons, Caron, give them Demon the full name. Demon Deacons got it wrong. But I mean, they, look, that was a very young American team. And actually, when you think of the pressure they must have been under because they were going to be the next hosts. And that's that's uncharted territory for FIFA and world football in general where the potential hosts for a World Cup are so at the periphery of international football. And they got a little bit of luck on their side to qualify. Um, like One of the things you don't hear people talking about very often with Italian 90 was where was the 1986 hosts? There's no Mexico at 1990. And there was no Mexico in the qualifiers. And that certainly cleared a path for a team like the USA or the team they ultimately pipped with the shot heard round the world in Trinidad. They they just got in ahead of Trinidad and Tobago. So Mexico's absence really cleared the way for the USA to build something from Italian 90 onwards and make them it's it's ultimately what's given the US its soccer focus at the moment. They've now got a professional league with lots of teams. High number of professionals. If you compare that the way they are now, there's probably a few hundred professional soccer players at the top level in America now. Many of them play at the top level in Europe. Mm. But at that time, as I say, you had UCLA Bruins players, you had Albany Capitals players, you had, um, was there a team called the Kickers as well? <laughs> you know, they, And they, they trained they, together for about US three soccer, months, didn't they? Yeah, they, they were given, I read it, an interview with Tony Miola where he was saying like they were after qualifying, they were given professional contracts for a certain number of months to lead up to the world cup. So it had a seismic effect on them. They were actually able to be professional in the lead into the world cup. But, but the Mexico story is really, is really interesting. And if you'll allow me to deviate, go for it. Mexico, Mexico were not at the 1990 world cup are allowed to participate in the qualifiers because of a scandal known as catchy rules whereby in the qualifiers for the 1989 FIFA World Youth Championships, uh, Mexico had been found to play overage players in an under-20 tournament. And it was actually a Mexican journalist that exposed this. Uh, It became a massive scandal, and it resulted in FIFA banning them from international competition for two years. Now, there's all sorts of theories ever since that the ban seemed a little excessive that other countries that had played overage players weren't getting the same treatment. And surely this was FIFA clearing the path for the USA to qualify for 1990. Now, uh, we've rang uh, the head of FIFA to come on and they weren't available for comments in that section. Yeah, and sa- sadly, Joe Havalange, who possibly is the only person who will know, has passed along since. But... You know, some of the theories that did, particularly in Mexico, they felt that this was a FIFA conspiracy. Now, um, where does, 
where where that might seem strange is Shao Havelange's closest aide in FIFA at the time was a Mexican a guy by the name of Guillermo Caneda. He was the head of a commercial TV network in Mexico. Was it in his interests to have Mexico omitted from the 1990 World Cup? Not if his company is one of those that benefits from showing the matches. On the other hand, there are others that will argue that in a World Cup cycle of three World Cups, it was in North America twice. So that possibly might have suited his media empire pretty well. An important bit of clarification to explain how this uh, underdog team had found their way to a World Cup finals, Billy Joe. Well, when you think of the, the scandals in, in, in the CONCACAF, I always get mixed up between them afterwards. Well, maybe that was a good starting point in terms of getting your foot in the door in terms of all the... Uh, shady dealings between TV companies and money and executive and uh, soccer executives. I, I think you're right. I think the way the game is going in, in in America would not be possible without qualification for 1990. I think that um, you wouldn't have the interest in 94. Maybe the fans, the American public in 94, would not be able to, I suppose, associate itself with a you know a foreign game to them as quickly as as they did if they didn't have that reference point of 1990. Um, and I think even if you listen to some of the American players from from that 1990 squad, they will say themselves that they were starting at a very low base in terms of organisation. I don't think they were very well organised when they got to Italy. They had no professional league at that stage. It was only coming out coming out afterwards. But when you look at where American players are now, um, it, it, it's been a huge transformation. And and then when you take the game in itself in America between. You know, male soccer, how popular uh, women's soccer is. It's a game that's growing and growing. And even I think in another 30 years, they're, they're definitely going to be a very dominant force in world football. Yeah, but it's, it, what's amazed me, Kieran, just to finish on this, is how obscure the sport was in America. It's only re-engaging with this, reading about it, listening to some Gimlet Media have a brilliant podcast about the story of America qualifying for that World Cup. I mean, it's, it's like maybe the American cricket team would have had as much of uh, kind of following. I found a really good statistic from a magazine at the time. At the time, soccer was the 25th most popular sport in uh, the USA behind tractor pulling. No! <laughs> I can't believe I mentioned cricket. Cricket must be way up. <laughs> tractor pulling. I, th- I, think, I think you'll find that cricket is probably behind potholing or something. Oh, fair like enough. That. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Actually, when I started to work that out, I was like, no problem. Tractor pulling! Wow. Now I want to read about American tractor pulling in 1990. No, I really don't. All right, Czechoslovakia. Billy Joe, you've got that because, look, we've talked about this. America have got there. Paul Caligiuri gets the goal against Trinidad and Tobago. He gets the goal here too, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Czechoslovakia played him off the park. Give me some context for our listeners. What kind of team did they have? As, as Kieran said, the, for, the opening 20 minutes, America, probably building on the excitement and the, the appetite they have for the tournament, you know, it was even enough, but... It's all about class and composure that sets the difference. And that first goal is a really, really well-worked goal. Scravi gets the ball out wide first and, and, and plays it inside. I can't remember who, to a colleague, who, who takes it into the box. And two Americans get drawn to the ball carrier and Scravi just finds himself in a pocket of space just beside the penalty spot. And your man just flicks it on the outside of his boot and Scravi finishes. It was a really, really well-worked counter-attack flowing move. And from that point... The Americans really struggle, and you just saw the Czechoslovaks grow in 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 confidence. And I suppose Scravi goes on to score a number, a lot of goals in Italy after the tournament. And you probably have 
players that we'd all recognise, particularly from an Irish context with the links to Celtic. Uh, and Moravchik played, now wasn't a standout on the day, but I think that you know we all recognise what sort of a technical player he was playing for Celtic, even though when he probably arrived at Celtic, no one knew who he was, but uh, he definitely showed us what he was worth during that part of his career. In, in, incidentally, a Slovakian on the team. Okay. <laughs> are, you gonna, are you going to keep correcting me? Can I, can I not cover any more Czechoslovakia games after this? <laughs> Let me check the schedule. I think its schedule is already set. You'll have to deal with it. I'm going to deviate a little from the game itself, if I can. I found a shoot magazine from that week. And um, you're going to love the article I found. This is about the Czech mate. That's the headline. Yes. Um, he he is the goalkeeper. Some people may remember this guy, Ludek McClasco. West Ham. Used to play for West Ham. So in Shoot, they have this article, Shoot Drives Ludek to Italy. There's a lovely photograph of Ludek in a man from Del Monte white suit. Uh, beside a car with lots of stickers on it from sponsors. This is how he's getting to Italian 90. So I'll just read it quickly if I can. West Ham and Czechoslovakia keeper Ludek McClasco couldn't be accused of taking the easy route to the World Cup finals. Instead of flying home to join up with the rest of the Czech squad and then on to Florence, where they will open their campaign against the USA, Ludek took the opportunity of driving there when offered the use of a Nissan Bluebird from Wings Car Hire of Leytonstone. Along the way, the popular Ludo also hopes to raise money for Dr. Bernardo's children's home, which obviously is fantastic. But I, I'm pretty sure I'd still have gone for the flight. Among the sponsors helping the Czech number one along the road to Italy are Britain's top soccer magazine, Shoot. The others include Alba Radios, Raheen Limited Builders, Avco Trust, P&O Ferries and the Automobile Association. I'm not sure that was as much a sponsorship, uh, Billy Joe, as a crowdfunding campaign in the, the 30 years before it's time. Yeah, he gets to rent a car for a couple of weeks, you know, and now they'd be paying soccer stars <laughs> to just stand beside a car and smile in a photograph. It just goes to show, I suppose, the, the commercial nature of football and, I suppose, the money that these star soccer players can make just by associating themselves with different brands. But uh, fair play to him for that, and I'm sure he'll probably remember the torture of driving all the way there as much as he does, the, 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 I suppose, the good time he had in Italy. And back, I gather. He had to drive the car back as well. He oh. had to drive the car back to Leytonstone, <laughs> presumably. I, I don't I don't think Wings had a drop-off depot in Florence. Oh, that's class. Uh, Wings car hire still exists. I'm looking it up online. I'm going to try and make some contact with them, see if anyone still works there who remembers the whole team. I, I, I have a feeling there might have been a Dennis Bergkamp element to this and he just didn't like flying because I just don't know how after getting selected to a World Cup squad, you go, oh, do you know what? It'll make it more interesting. I, I don't know who does that. Well, Just, just coming back to the game, Rob, uh, the one thing that I can remember really standing out from this was just how good technically the, che- the Czechoslovaks were. Um, but they, like they had some, they actually had a player in the squad that, because I did wonder about, they seemed to have a lot of support in the stands, but Lubas Kubik was playing for Fiorentina at the time. So that possibly explains that. Any final thoughts on this one, Billy Joe? Yes, the most important thought, the thing that just, oh. just jumped off the screen for me, the mullets. Yeah. You know, you've got the oh, clear yeah. distinction. You have the clear distinction of the Tony Miola, really North American mullet, where it's really tight on top with a, a long, a lot of long party out the back. Whereas Thomas Scrabby, then much more, you know, communist bloc, Eastern European, um, 
much more authentic in my book. Uh, so they they are the first things that I know. Discovered the, he he has the just discovered the scorpions mullet. <laughs> the wind the winds have changed. My final thought is uh, Kelly Jury's goal was absolutely class. If you're going to get one goal in a game where you're beating five one, the movement, the finish, whew, one of the, that's I'm putting that in my uh, nominations for goals of the World Cup and throwing it in there, Kieran. Uh, yeah, I, I I I won't dispute that. I I he's actually one of those players that that you would have been looking out for on the USA team because the fact he had scored the shot that's that was heard around the world meant we'd heard something about him in advance. So we had some adv- idea of what kind of player he was. But actually, the goal itself was brilliant. It was a great finish. You know, he skipped past, but it was, I can't remember who played the ball into him, but it was inch perfect because it was nearly intercepted, but just had enough to, to get, get past the Czechoslovak defender. And it rounds the keeper and just enough on it to get it past uh, the dive and the, uh, trying to block it on the line. But I think he probably went into that World Cup with a lot of confidence from the goal he got in Trinidad. And uh, I think it was fitting that he got he got their key goal. Just before we leave this game, Rob, just, just bear with me for one second. I just wanted to raise, and it's completely inconsequential in a 5-1 win for Czechoslovakia, a really impressive win. But the one thing we have associated with Czechoslovakia prior to Italia 90 is their big moment in the sun in 1976 when they're European champions. And that results because of an utterly iconic penalty taken by Panienka, which becomes a verb since the Panienka. Google it, children. Panienka, 1976. Just coolness personified, lobbing in a perfectly placed penalty in the biggest moment of his life. So we kind of expect that Czechoslovakia are going to be pretty good at penalties. And then we get two in this game. And the first is emphatic. Bilek, it's power, it's precision. Top corner, Tony Miola stands no chance. But late in the game, they get another. And there's kind of a dispute over who gets to take it. Thomas Garavi's on two goals. He wants his hat-trick. We've seen that for the previous 20 minutes because every time he gets the ball, he tries to shoot, no matter how ridiculous the angle. And then you got Bilek, who's dispatched the first one perfectly. And, and he stands his ground and he says, no, I'm taking this. And he actually tries at Panenka. But it's terrible. I mean, I can't begin to describe how bad this is. He just lobs it to the centre of the goal, straight into the hands of Miola. It's one of the worst penalty kicks you'll see in a World Cup Finals. And definitely not what you would have expected, given the way he scored the first, given that legacy they've had of being such great penalty takers. So hopefully we don't see any more of that from Bill Eck during the tournament. Right, that's it. One last thing just to think about, because we do like to put political context in. That week, that very week that game was played, uh, Czechoslovakia were having their first free elections in over 40 years as a nation. So, wow. The, the, were, the players had to miss it. Oh, they couldn't vote? They couldn't vote because they, they, were, they were interviewed about it and as disappointed as they were, they were happy to be at the World Cup, but they were disappointed to have missed out on such an important moment for their nation. That would have been a real bummer if somebody had gotten over the line by 21 votes or something. <laughs> exactly. All right, time to move on. Game two. Brazil 2, Sweden 1. Right, Brazil entered the World Cup with lots of uncertainty. 
lots of hope. I saw a uh, video footage of Brazil's training session before uh, one of their games uh, on an old BBC newsreel, if you like, Billy Joe Patton. And uh, the amount of Brazilian journalists in what I would say is a fourth division type ground broadcasting live back to Brazil, the Brazilian training session, uh, just blew my mind. Uh, you know, we kind of think we were saying this was the first global World Cup and maybe multimedia wasn't the same, but the interest back in Brazil clearly was phenomenal, as much as ever, really. Well, that's it. I, I don't think anything has changed there. Well, you, you hear the, the sto- stories and from past World Cups in 19... 19- 50 or, you know, the, the issues they had in the, the Maracana, they're losing to Uruguay and the devastation that that ca- caused in, in Brazil. That sort of link between the public and their mindset and their happiness in terms of uh, links to how their beloved football team are doing in World Cups. And I don't think that will ever change because there's such a passion for football in that country. But I think it gives you an idea of how linked, you know, probably politics in, in South America is to the national football team and just in terms of the pressure the players are under. And when you consider what has happened Brazil in other World Cups, like the whole Ronaldo incident in, in 98, the pressure that was on to play there, what he was dealing with, what other players have had to deal with by pulling on that famous yellow yellow shirt. Uh, you know, even 1994, again, you go to Rai, was captain, wasn't playing well. He ends up you know, under pressure to get dropped. That all this sort of stuff, you have to be really, really mentally strong as a coach and as a player to be able to function and perform well for Brazil in these big tournaments. Yeah, I think I think the thing with Brazil that we we sometimes forget because maybe some of the other South American countries don't have massive populations, but the population of Brazil is massive. It's probably if we were to take countries where football is the national sport, and it clearly is. It's the biggest in terms of population. There's over 200 million people there. So that's going to mean lots of newspapers, lots of magazines, lots and lots of television. So you can understand the attention that comes with it. But then the added pressure of it being their sport. I don't think any other team comes into a World Cup with as much pressure on their shoulders as Brazil do. Philly Joe, the, the game itself then, you have a Swedish team that have finished ahead of England in their qualifying group. Uh, there's a lot of hope about what what they're what they've been producing and a lot of quality names in there. So they came in with a bit of confidence. Uh, in the early stages, though, they were just struggling to enforce their game on Brazil. I just got the impression Brazil from the get go just seemed to have a bit of control on this. We would have more familiarity, I suppose, at that time with 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 Swe- Swedish players. There wasn't as many South Americans playing in England, at, at, obviously, at that time. And you had Anders Limpar at, at Arsenal and uh, Roland Nielsen, I think, played for Coventry and Wednesday as well. I think he was. I think he was at Wednesday at that stage. Yeah. yeah uh, so there were players that were you know, we were we were seeing week in week out, and you, you understood them. I suppose we we learned more about Thomas Boland after this tournament and and what he goes on to do in '94 as well, and you know. He plays for Parma and, and, and Leeds. But I think then when you look at when you look at the game itself and Brazil, I think the first goal, my my views of the game probably clouded by the lovely samba music that has played on any of the highlights of the game that I've watched back of the goals and the pass from Branco to put Kareka through. And just the composure he shows where he you know kind of stands up Ravelli. And Ravelli's a good eccentric sort of a goalkeeper who was probably really good on those one-on-one situations because as a striker you don't know really what he's going to do uh, 
and he that lovely hip movement to pause, step to his left and inside, and and just to finish into an empty net. Absolutely beautiful goal. And as I mentioned earlier, the the iconic celebration uh, with the jig at the corner flag, um, and it really got Brazil up and running. But you just watching that game back, you just felt with Brazil is that when I associate Brazil with. And I think people have for far too long associated Brazil with the Samba football and 1982, this beautiful play at all costs. And there wasn't really any of that. There wasn't any of that, I suppose, fluency. And it seemed to me that they, you know, they were happy to take their 1-0 lead and happy to be just, you know, kind of see the game, try and see the game out after that period. Led by Dunga too, Kieran, they didn't pull out of tackles. No, I mean, you've got to say, like, if you look at the team's at that time, there was a physicality to the midfields. I mean, the Ger- West Germany had it, Italy had it, Brazil probably identified that from from what Billy Joe's talking about, from eighty two and eighty six, from not achieving at those. They've said, "What what do the European teams bring to a World Cup that we don't?" And Dunga was probably the answer. I mean, the one thing I had written down watching this game back was, "How on earth did Kareka not get a hat trick?" He had a lot of chances. And he was in Napoli at the time, wasn't he? Uh, just, you know, a key part of that team as well. We all talk about Maradona, but... Yeah, no oh, doubt. Yeah. Napoli, Na- Napoli don't win Scudettos without Correca. No, he was a key, a key piece to, to that team and was a, a brilliant, brilliant forward. Uh, had a wonderful tournament in, in 86, uh, just his, his finishing ability. He really was an outstanding attacker. And sometimes when you look at Brazil through the 80s, he was probably the missing piece of the jigsaw for the 82 team because if they had that kind of, you know, ice in his veins, sort of real out-and-out goal scorer, it could have been a very, very different World Cup and we that team would have a very, very different legacy. Not only would they be the beautiful team, but they might have been the beautiful winners. So you, you, just, you just don't know. But for Napoli, his relationship with uh, Maradona was key. I suppose Alamau was, a, you know, a deep-line midfielder as well for, for, for Napoli and playing in this Brazil team. So they had those sort of connections. Throughout, even Muller, the other forward all player, I think played for Torino uh, as as well. So they had the experience of playing in Italy. So there was there should there was no issues in relation to you know comfort level playing over there. I think it was as much of a Brazil national team kind of trying to adapt an identity or maybe trying to change their identity, which maybe wasn't what they should have done in the first place. But then again, people will go to ninety four and see what they did and say it's totally justified. Uh, just just on, on one thing because. We might get sidetracked by looking at goals. Branco's pass. Oh yeah, Branco's pass was incredible. You you can overstate it that this was a more physical Brazil, but that was real Brazil football. That passes, that passes inch perfect. You were talking about Billy Joe, even the simplicity of Muller's pass for Kreka's uh, second goal. I love that goal because you watch it first time and you just think, oh, that simply just simply crosses it in front of uh, into that area or. or Somebody might like to call it what uh, the area of uncertainty or something, but he just puts the cross. But it's that movement by Kareka. Kareka stalls for a second, makes it look like he's going to go to his right. The two defenders down front from kind of recognize that movement and pause, and then he goes back to his left in a, in a sort of a fluid way. Muller knows exactly what he's going to do, and he just simply side foots it across. Kareka doesn't have to break stride; it's inch perfect, and he just sides footed. Ravelli, the ball is past Ravelli before he even realised what's happening. Uh, beautiful simplicity, but it's all about the relationship between Muller and Kareka and Muller understanding exactly what Kareka is going to do. 
you have to be good, Billy Joe, as a young lad to get to start for your nation in a World Cup opening game uh, with just a few uh, warm-up games as experience. Obviously, he had banged in a few goals in those warm-up games, but Thomas Brawling uh, announces himself on the world stage here in this game. Unique goal, anyways. Uh, watching it back again, uh, just before we came, uh, we, we started the podcast, I wanted to watch the goal back in. It, it, the ball comes in from the right, and it's, it's kind of crossed to a funny area, which is like 35 yards out. You never see this. The ball is headed directly into him. And I think it kicks, takes a couple of the Brazilian defenders by surprise. And Brolin, you know, he was a real quick-thinking player, reacts quickly, get his bo- gets his body in a real good position to shield the defender, takes the ball on one touch round the corner. And there, after that stage, the, the defender's in real trouble. And he just shows the composure then to place it past the keeper. An excellent goal, but again, made by, I think, the unique header into Brolin and his first touch. Was, was absolutely phenomenal in, in that regard, to turn around the corner. And it, I think what you see there is the fearlessness of youth. Coming into a team, playing against Brazil, not being overawed, wanting to show Brazilians and that vast public and the reputation and the heritage that they have, that you are a technical footballer also and that you can do these classy things on a, on a football field. Yeah, because the easy thing would have been for him to go down. That's right. There was bad contact there, yeah? Yeah, I mean, the easy thing there is go down. And actually, I think this is his third cap. I think he'd only played two games before the World Cup, two friendlies. I think he scored four goals in his first two friendlies. Uh, I know one was against Wales, maybe the other was Finland. But he's such a young kid at this now. He he looks, he's 20, but he does look a lot younger, let's be honest. I thought he was about 17 in my memory until I checked. Yeah, yeah. like... This, he, he's the definition of a baby-faced assassin, that cliche that developed afterward. <laughs> but terrific composure, and they needed a player like him because actually they had struggled a bit in qualifying. They'd only scored six six goals in nine qualifying matches, so they needed a sword at the point of their attack. They didn't have to worry as he walked off that field and they didn't get any impression because, you know, the 2014 tournament, I think a lot of even younger football fans have experienced that uh, with the European Championship switching to that. So they understand now what it was like to know that maybe three teams are going to go through from your group. And if you played the top seeds in your opening game, you were absolutely not out of the tournament by losing your first game. So as they walked off that field, knowing Costa Rica and Scotland were ahead, Scotland next, it wasn't all over. And they probably took a bit from the fact that they fought back. It's a real crescendo of noise around the stadium now. Yes, and the Brazilians are loving every minute of that as well as the game. It's carnival time. And it's Carreca's carnival. Anything else in this game, lads? The only thing that, you know, piqued my interest when you look at the team sheets afterwards is and you see Romario sitting on the bench and a Brazil team that only made one substitution. I know you, you, don't, you didn't have the flexibility you have with substitutions now. But the ability that and the flair that he brought to to any pitch that he uh, that he played on Romario, I was kind of just a bit disappointed I didn't get to see him playing. And, and Bebeto, actually, when you look at the subs, yeah. I mean, you were only allowed five at the time, but you're kind of going, they've stacked they've stacked the deck there. There's two brilliant strikers on the bench. Uh, I I thought the one thing for me was you probably would have had a lot of hope that Brazil were going to be contenders here. They were one of the pre-tournament favourites. They'd created enough chances that you were you thought, yeah, they'll they'll create goal chances and they'll score them. And from a Swedish perspective, I think I was probably walking away at this stage going, they're probably the team that's going to come out in second. But who knows? We'll see. Right. Game three. 
West Germany 4, Yugoslavia 1. Well, this is the showpiece game of the day, but we've had two brilliant games, Kieran. So it's it just underlines, like if you're sitting down, even just watching through the highlights of the day, or maybe you had to pick your game and you've sat into this one, you're, you're just having a feast of football and this didn't disappoint. All right, if you're a Yugoslavia fan, it disappointed. But, you know, even they would have had to sit back and say, West Germany, wow. I know, th- this game, Rob, I'm pretty sure in the wait for Ireland, England, this was the one that excited me most. I loved this West German team. Re- the reason that, you know, when you pick teams in different countries, and at that time, Serie A was on every Monday night on television, and the reason I picked Inter Milan was because of the three Germans they had on the team. And they're brilliant players, but still to this day, I would say I rate Lothar Mateus as high as virtually any other footballer I just thought he was a brilliant brilliant player and that was what I was anticipating coming into this game and boy did he deliver but on a separate note and I know Billy Joe knows a good bit more about this that Yugoslavian team was incredibly exciting as well yeah some amazing names in that Yugoslavian team Billy Joe right throughout the squad Uh, and it's an incredible era for for that nation in terms of football and that's that's such an understatement when you think of it from the terms of what was to come. It could could have been the start of something really amazing for a country like Yugoslavia, but as, as you know, politics, history, uh, they, that all gets in the way. In many ways, I look through this Yugoslavia team and you see the quality. You see some experienced players, but if anything, the most exciting thing about Yugoslavian football at that time were, was the quality of the young players coming through. So even in this World Cup, if if some people think that it may have been a missed opportunity for Yugoslavia because they were so good and they could have done even even better. Um, I, I think they would have been at their peak in in the in, in Euro '92 or USA '94, um, and you only have to think then what Croatia you know go and do in the in the in the next two tournaments, Euro '96 and France '98. And and all right, Croatia had a bunch of really good footballers, but if you think of the combined all those nations combined and the quality that they would have been able to put out under the Yugoslav shirt. Would have just been. I, I don't think. I don't think anyone in Europe would have been able to match the the quality they would have had during throughout the whole of the nineties. But just getting back to this game, I suppose the first name you look for is Dragan Stojkovic. Cool name, cool footballer. You know, wonderfully technical. Scores a couple of great goals throughout this World Cup, and of course the Germans kick him at the first opportunity they get, and that's oh, kind of- Uwe Bein, step up. <laughs> Ouch. I actually, I when I when we were when we were watching this, I was looking down through the team list and I was kind of going, "Who's Uwe Bein? I just couldn't remember him. What's his role in this team?" And then it's it's, it's laid out there pretty quickly. His role is to absolutely kick as high in the air as he can any creative player on the opposing team. <laughs> which is it like they have all these great players and and no we still need a guy to do that as well oh man they go after they go after Yugoslavia in general actually Billy Joe because you know we all hear we know the song put them under pressure here in Ireland that was Jack Charlton's mantra by god West Germany did a bit of that as well there was a specific role in all these teams where they had to have one of these hatchet men because you could get away with it it was the crazy thing about football at the time that you you nearly had 
three goals at it before you before you get a yellow card. And there was three or four of these tackles in the first seven or eight minutes. And actually, it was Stoikovic gets one back on Bremer, which could have been deemed accidental. Bremer just mistimes one and gets a yellow card for it. But those buying a few more had before that had done way worse and got away with it scot free. But it was so obvious in those early stages, first twenty five minutes that the Germans were really feeling the Yugoslavs out. They were kind of having a look and saying, we'll sit back and see what these fellas are made of. And any time Zavicevic or Stojkovic got the ball, and you just see the wonderful technical ability they have. They skip past one, maybe inside another, bang. The third man takes them out. There is going to be no way that they're going to create any interplay. No one-twos allowed. You know, None of this slick passing. And, and the Germans just stop it dead right there. But after that, 20 minutes the Germans come into it but really for the opening period in terms of the football that's played you know you know the, the, one of the football hipsters favourites in Safa Susic used to play for Paris Saint-Germain throughout the throughout the 80s now I think he's 35 at this stage but just the way he's clipping balls off the inside of his boot off the outside of his right boot when he has time in those opening 20 minutes when the Germans are sitting back and I think then you see Beckenbar's know-how where he kind of sets up the team to have a look at them they have a look. They realise we're physically dominant. We're going to pressurise them. And then they press. And it's something I wasn't expecting to see in football in 1990 when I went back and looked at it. But the Germans really put the squeeze on. Yeah. I I, I, um, I was trying to think about, as I watched the German press, I was going, holy crap, the German press. And, I, and whether it was my 14-year-old self just wasn't tactically knowledgeable enough to know that like I don't remember us watching World Cups and hearing about tactics on from pundits I think we heard about great players we heard about great athleticism I don't remember there being the same emphasis then that there is now on tactics but as soon as you see the Germans press you're going oh my god they've been doing this for 30 years now Billy Joe, were, were, were Yugoslavia naive in how they dealt with it then? Because Yugoslavia tried to continue their games. Like, they refused to, uh, well, like to simply put it, kick long. They kept trying their short passing game out of defence. Yes, uh, uh, just one point on, on the evolution of German football. It, when Kieran says it there, it seems so obvious that the, I suppose, the rejuvenation or the revolution in German football in the last 15 years had to start with that physicality and that press and that athleticism to play high up the field and be brave. There was evidence of it here in, in one of their greatest successes in, in the 1990 World Cup. But you're right. To me, you just see that the Yugoslavs want to play the game at a different pace, a slower pace. The Germans just up the ante. And the Yugoslavs were not able to live with it at that time. And it probably was as much to do with they just couldn't get enough bodies high enough up the, up the field. And Susic and Stojkovic were finding themselves far too far away from Savicevic and Vujovic up front. And they just couldn't create create anything like anything really that they could put together. But maybe different to what we spoke about with Argentina the first day out where they're playing similar systems and Argentina had no width whatsoever. The difference with Germany is they're pressed high up the field, but they had width. They had Bremer hugging the sideline, who was always a danger. We'll go on and talk about the goal he created. And, and and Reuter up the up the other side, so they were a much more complete team to play the system that they were trying to play with Matthias right in the middle of it, playing a, a role that was so at odds with what he'd done in the past for Germany. He'd man marked Maradona in the nineteen eighty six World Cup final, whereas to, whereas to, to, in this game his role was really as 
an attacking midfielder. He was like a number 10 who had the freedom of the park to go deep and drive forward with the ball into those spaces. And Voller and Klinsman pulled left and pulled right to create that area of space for him. And that's where both his goals come from. Amazing, really. And so let's take the, take our listeners through the goals, particularly the three, the first three West German goals, Kieran. Matthias's first goal is arguably as good as his second in a different way. And I love the Klinsman goal. I love the Klinsman goal. The header is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to, well, obviously I've already admitted that I, I have a, a softness for these particular players. But when Matthias gets the first goal, I can remember leaping around the sitting room. You know, I just thought, yeah, take that, Maradona. Let's see you do something like that. There's, there's a naivety to the 14-year-old me that's going, he's definitely better than Maradona. And it was. It was, <laughs> it was a great finish. What I didn't realise at the time, and I now realise, is exactly what Billy Joel said. The movement of the other players to create the space for the opportunity. Like Fuller and Klinsman are so intelligent in terms of how they get out of the square to create the opportunity for someone who's as technically great as Mateus to score that goal. Now, second goal. Klinsman's header is outrageous. Outrageous. He's diving away from the corner he's heading to. The athleticism, the skill, the speed of thought, the courage to throw yourself at that ball because it's not like it's a head-high header. This is maybe a metre off the ground. That's the kind of place that a defender is going to put his boot if he wants to clear it. And he, oh, I just thought, wow, this this was what we'd been waiting for for three days. I know, it was fantastic. When, I suppose my memory as a kid is, is always, uh, it kind of blends into when I was, at that age, after obviously after the World Cup, my uncle gave me, you know, an old VCR of all the goals of the 1982 World Cup, the 1986 World Cup, and the 1990 World Cup. And the, the, the Matthias second goal is just imprinted on my mind because it was at the start of every rainy day, the, the, it went into the video player, and you just see that pace and power and a sort of deliberate uh, there was something deliberate about even both Matthias's goals. When he turns in on his left for the first goal, you know he's going to hit it. It seems like he takes an age to hit it, but it's inch perfect in the corner and the goalkeeper can do nothing about it. From about the halfway line when he has the second goal, he hurdles uh, a defender and, and gets back on track. You know, he's hitting this. He's going to hit it low. He's going to hit it hard and it's going to go right in the corner. Lothar Matthias is not going to balloon this into Rosette at the stand. And that's exactly what he does. That sort of, to use a, you know, a stereotype, that ruthless German efficiency. And I don't think there ever has been a player that showed that quality uh, as much as Lothar Matthias does in this whole World Cup. Yeah, that, those two goals say, I'm the king of the San Siro. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that's the significance of it because... AC Milan may be European champions, but I am the king of the San Siro. That's what he's saying. Now, this game in reality, 4-1 kind of makes it look like Yugoslavia were way off the races. They weren't. I mean, when they get to 2-1, you're kind of thinking they're in this game. It's only how special the Mateus goal is that turns this into something of a comprehensive victory. And... Uh, Thomas says Ivkovic is going to be pretty embarrassed, I would say, by his mistake for Valor's goal. 
Yes, we saw some bad goalkeeping in the first game uh, by Pompido for Argentina, and this was equally bad mistake. You know, ball he should have gathered. But I think, as well, maybe on Voller, another player that was playing in Italy at the time for Roma. You know, I always felt that maybe he was a bit, you know, cumbersome. But it's what you were saying earlier, Kieran, and just how he fitted into the what they were trying to do as a team. He ran the channels, you know, ran the left hand side of the field. Klinsman really kind of took the right hand side of the field, and it provided the space for Mateus. But I had a much after watching the game, I had much more appreciation for what sort of an athlete he was. You know, he was, you know, I suppose strong, much quicker than I'd given credit for. And like all good goal scorers, when a goalkeeper makes an error like that, he's there to bungle it over the line, really. And uh, when you look at that, when you put it together, then in terms of the quality of that German team, those four Italian-based players at the time, in terms of the Inter Milan lads and and Voller, like that's a, a really they're really important attacking players and would you know, add an awful lot, you know, that's a world-class four in kind of important creative positions considering the way the team was set out. Yeah, and I, I, the, one, the one thing I would say about Voller is I, I kind of, at times I feel Voller is the German Lineker. You know, he's he's not going to do anything that's mercurial, but he's going to do the most important thing in terms of getting you results, which is he'll get it over the line. We every so often during this uh, journey through the World Cup, we'll try and capture some other angles from around the world. Just here's a few seconds of our West German fan Alex just describing what it was like from their perspective as a fan of that uh, nation in that World Cup, just to watch that goal go in at such a key point. Matthias's second goal. Uh, hi, my name is Alex Schutz. Originally, I am from near Aachen, which is on the Dutch border in Germany. And Italian 90, I was 14 years of age. And I watched most of it, uh, well, actually all of it at home with my dad, usually. Yeah, like, I think we were 2-1 up and Yugoslavia kind of moved forward, uh, but lose the ball kind of just into our half. I don't know, it's like one of the defenders, like first touch, picks out Mateus just in our half. A fairly central position and he gets it quick look around and he starts moving and they kind of i don't know how fast it went like it's probably five seconds that he sprinted down took on one or two yugoslav defenders even midfielders gets into good position even still central 25 meters in front of the goal and all of the time has it on his right foot and my dad is kind of but can he shoot with his right foot? He's like, yes. And before I like stop, he sends a rocket down into the corner. No chance for the keeper. Like, what a hero. And, you know, like, if, if you watch this, the moment he has the ball on his foot, like, you see the intent, the purpose, the, the power, like, is unstoppable. All right, that's almost it. Coming up tomorrow, we've got 16-time Irish international John Anderson joining us, as well as Gavin Webster, comedian, podcaster from Newcastle. We're taking a different angle on the Ireland-England game. We're just paying attention to the Northeast influence on that contest. To get you in the mood for that game, here's a little package we put together of some voices to set the scene for what the world was like as Ireland got ready to play England for the first time in two years in a major tournament, only two years on from the great win in your 88. I'm William Davis from Galway and I watched Italian 90 in Galway. 
got to remember, Ireland had played England in Stuttgart in 1988 in the European Championships. And that, I think, had whetted people's appetite. The World Cup was a bigger event. The European Championships was all over in a week. Ireland played on Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, and valiantly went out. So there was a sense of huge excitement because it was the old enemy. The focus of the whole start of the World Cup was this game on a Monday night, and Galway was essentially closed down. The pubs were full. Everywhere else was shut. You couldn't get a taxi. And everybody piled in straight after work, got their seat, and the game started. The Irish Hotel is only three miles down the beach from England's headquarters, a prospect which didn't exactly delight the Sardinian police. I don't know why. I mean, it's pretty secure. This is only one road in and one road out. And it's, uh, you can't get in either end of either beach, apparently. The England are about five miles down the road. I think it was just that they got in first, England, when they, were, when they had the advantage of knowing that they were going to be here and got everything sorted out. And then we had to take second bits, which we're not really keen on. And then when we get told we can't even have the second bits, we dig where heels you a little bit. Jack will be, Jack Charles will be the same. He knows uh, a good start is essential. He knows we, he plays us. Uh, he'll be looking for two points. He won't be looking to lose. We're the same. Unfortunately, we can't please each other, can we? You know, if we, if we get a point, we'll be a bit disappointed. He'll be disappointed, so will I. It's a big match. And their players come from the same league as us. If you look at their players, they're in the first division. Same players, same league. Same style of football, same problems. You know, so it's not, uh, it's not an easy match for either of us, you know. And uh, it's going to be a big match. It's going to be white hot on the day. Exceptionally white hot on the day. And anybody who's a little bit fluffy here or fluffy there, you know, uh, is not going to play his part for that team. And I've got to make sure that we haven't got anybody like that in the team. So, you know, we need, we need to get off to a good result. And we know Jackie Starr, we know what Jackie will be saying. He's done a marvellous job for Ireland. But, you know, our results and our record is equally as good. People forget, I think people forgot that, you know. It's quite amazing, but there it is. You sold your own, doing the best you can. Same night, McSwiggins Bar in Woodkey, sitting up at the bar. I'd got there early, got my seat. A gentleman came down from the restaurant upstairs and he plentifully asked one of the waitresses who was standing there we didn't get our dessert he was an American man very polite and she just looked at him and she said if you go up to the kitchen sir go through the doors go inside, open the fridge and help yourself to whatever dessert you want she was not moving she had her space you didn't give up your space. There was only one, maybe two televisions in the bar. There was no big screens. And off he went. I think he was absolutely shocked. And that has stuck in my mind forever. <laughs> 